Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Let's open this morning to the little epistle of Jude. We're going to, I'm hoping I can get all the way through verse 1. We're going to spend most of the day on the third word. But Jude, this, this little book, and I'm not going to go into all the technicalities, but Jude self-identifies himself, very first word, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. There's no internal evidence in the scriptures exactly who James and Jude are, but it was pretty well accepted in the first century that James that he is talking about is James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, and that Jude, therefore, is also a half-brother of Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, we see when Jesus was in Nazareth, we're also going to, also going to look at um, Matthew 13, but let's look at Mark 6, 3 first. It says, Is this not the carpenter, speaking of Jesus, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. This is when Jesus went to the, the um, um, local synagogue and taught. And just a little side thought, when you go through and read that, they weren't offended at him until he made the statement to them that during um, Elisha and Elisha's time period that God only sent those prophets to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. When he first read the scriptures, they were amazed at the authority he had. It was only when he pointed out that God's more interested in, the, or as interested in the Gentiles as the Jews, that they got offended at him. But Matthew 13, 56, 55 and 56, the parallel passage says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. Basically, not only were the people in the town offended at him, but his family. There are other passages that say that his family really were, they, they weren't believers. You know, a lot of faiths will point out and, and cast Mary in this light that Mary always contemplated and knew that Jesus was the Messiah. That's not so. Mary figured out that Jesus was the Messiah the same way everybody else did when he resurrected. Now, she was at the cross, as was John, and they were loyal to him. She was his mother, but she was not certain who this man was, and she was not certain that he was the Son of God. Now, she knew God had come and visited her and had told her things, but she did not have a revelation. And the reason I know that is it said in the, in the Scriptures, it says even Satan did not know who Jesus was. He did not realize who he was dealing with until the resurrection. Then it all became clear. And the same way with, with them. But in both of these, when it says Judas, that's Jude. Judas is just the Hebrew word for the, the Greek name Jude. Same way, if 
you, my name in, in um, Hebrew is, is Jonas, John. So in Spanish, Juan, same name, different languages. So we're talking about Jude. We're talking about the, the half-brother of Jesus. He, he knew Jesus intimately on a natural level. He was raised in the same household with him. Even, and there were years differences in their ages, but still, when, you're, when you live with someone, you get to know their personalities, you get to know their actions, you get to know everything about them. You see them at their best and at their worst. So Jude was intimately familiar with the man, Jesus. But notice who, how Jude identifies himself now. He, he, he does not claim to be the brother of Jesus. He claims to be the brother of James. But his relationship with Jesus is, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, the, this term bondservant is very interesting. This, the, the Greek term there is doulos, and it, it can mean a, a servant or a slave of the lowest level. There, are, there were ranks in, in slavery in the Jewish community the same way there were ranks in every slave household. There are high-ranking slaves and there are low-ranking slaves. Well, the doulos would be the one who was doing the really hard jobs, the really nasty jobs. But there's a difference here with being a bondservant. A bondservant does the lowliest job and is quite willing to do it, but they do it because of their love for their master. This is not someone forcibly being put into slavery. There is a difference between being a slave that's driven into slavery and being a slave because you chose to serve someone. And we see this, you have to keep in mind, slavery in um, a Jewish concept is very different than our concept, because in America, when we think of slaves, we think of the antebellum South. We, you know, uh, we, we, well, they tried having bond servants, indentured servants. It didn't work. They would run off, and it was a big country, a lot of wilderness. You got tired of serving your master, you just picked up and you went west. If you survived, you could make a fortune. You know, the early settlers did. So we started, in the United States, we started importing slaves from Africa. And they did it from Africa for one particular reason. Their skin was black. You could readily identify them. That's why they did it. You didn't have to brand them. But that was, was involuntary servitude. That's not what we're talking about here. In fact, we're going to look at Exodus 21. Deuteronomy 15 also talks about slavery in a Jewish context. But in, in Exodus 21, uh, we're going to read it. We're going to start in verse 1. But there, the, the law speaks of a slave. But in a, in a Jewish context, if you enslaved someone, especially another Jew, you could only keep them in that servitude for six years. And after their sixth year of serving you, they were free to go or free to stay. And if they decided to leave, you could not let them, you could not send them off empty-handed. 
You had to bless them. You had to give them cattle. You had to give them goods. You had to give them whatever your household was doing. You had to provide for them out of your goods so they could get a start in life after these six years. It, it really was a way of, of paying wages. But, well, let's just read Exodus 21. Let's start in verse 1, and then we'll come back to it. It says, Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If... If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be, masters, shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, and this is the key that we're looking at, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. If that is the decision of the slave, and it, was, it had to be a willful decision, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and all think ice pick, if you're old enough to remember ice picks. It's like a nail. Just bring a big nail, pin his earlobe to the doorpost, Drive the nail through, pierce his ear. And he shall serve him forever. When you do this, it's a lifelong commitment. There's no going back on this one. Now, I'm, we're not going to go to Deuteronomy 15, but Deuteronomy 15 also adds that it's where it says if, if they decide to go out, you're going to bless them. So, and I say that because Dean mentioned it a minute ago. Um, the enemies of the gospel will take verses from the scripture and criticize the scripture. And one of the things they do, they say, is, well, the Bible talks about slavery and accepts slavery. Therefore, the Bible cannot be a good book. It's an evil book. It accepts slavery. Well, it accepted slavery because slavery is a universal uh, aspect of human culture. There is not one culture that has ever existed on this planet that did not enslave other human beings. That is not just a, a unique situation to the United States of America. Every culture has used slavery. Doesn't mean that it's good, but with the Jews, it was a different, totally different concept. With, with most other cultures, and I'm, I'm not an authority on every culture, so I can't say it's every culture, but the vast majority, when you took a slave, you took them involuntarily. You enslaved them. And they were your slave. If they didn't do what you wanted to do, you just whacked their head off. Except you lost your investment. That's not how the Jews looked at this. The Jews looked at this as, a, as being a servant or an employee, and it was a limited time. Now, But what I want us to see here, is, is, and I want to focus in on, on verse 6. If this person decides that they want to stay in, in uh, servanthood to this master, they go to the door and, and they pierce the earlobe through the door, through the ear into the door with a, a nail. Now, automatically, that ought to bring some parallels this, is, this law was written 
1,500 years before Jesus. And yet very clearly we see parallels with the, the crucifixion. You've got a door, you've got nails going through flesh, and you've got blood being shed, and you have permanent scars in the person who is giving their life to their master. Now I know when I first thought had this thought, I thought, well, well, wait a minute. I see all of that imagery, but this is a person giving their, their life or giving their, and becoming the servant of a master. So or, or is this saying that Jesus became the servant of mankind? Absolutely. And that is an unbelievable thought. The God of the universe would come to earth, become a man, mark himself with permanent scars. Do you realize when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, I've had 17 surgeries in my life, and I don't say that proudly. I'm just saying it's a fact. i got scars every, over them. Sometimes when you do um, background checks, one of the questions is, Prominent scars. <laughs> it's like, Lord, I've only got two lines. It's going to take me half a page. I've got scars everywhere. But when I get to get my new body, there's not going to be a scar on it. It's brand new. Unscarred, untouched, unmarred. For those of you that love your tattoos, guess what? When you get to heaven, they're not going to be there. No tattoos in heaven. And I'm not, I'm not preaching against tattoos. But... I'm just saying, all of the markings that we have, they're all gone. But for all eternity, Jesus is going to have holes in his hands. He's going to have a hole in his side. He's going to have the marks of the thorns in his, in his head. He will bear those scars forever, and he chose to do that. And in doing that, he became our servant. Now, that does not mean that we command him... Except in the, in the case where the scriptures, God says, take my word and command my word to me. Which is, let me translate that. It says, when I have told you that I want this for you, then take me at my word and say, God, you're going to do this for me. You're not bossing God. You're agreeing with God. And you're exercising your faith and saying, God, I believe you said this. It's going to come true. That in, but in, he has joined himself with us. He's joined himself with the human race. And he, he did all of this. He, the nails were pierced through his flesh. But, but also notice, and there's, there's two things here that are, it's just amazing when you look at it. Um, they did it on a door frame, which takes you back. Uh, Moses is writing this. He's, he's up on Mount Moriah. When he's getting the law, God says, I want you to write all this down. And this is part of the law. They've already gone through the exodus. The, 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 the event that finally drove and, and commanded Pharaoh to let my people go was the death angel. And how did the Jews not get killed? How did their, their firstborns not die? Because they took a lamb and they slit its throat and they bled it out. And they took that blood and they took hyssop. Hyssop is like um, probably the, the plant that would closest resemble, resemble hyssop for us would be like cattails. 
They're, they're a plant that grows in swampy water, swampy land, and they're, they're, they have a lot of moisture. So if you just take a piece of hyssop and, and pull it out of the, out of the soil and hit it, uh, uh, hit it hard on a, on a piece of wood, it's going to leave a wet mark. It's going to leave water behind. But they took the hyssop, they dipped it into the blood of the lamb that had been shed as a substitute, and then they took that blood and they struck the doorposts and the lentils. Now, this is a metaphor, but, but think of this. This doorframe is a very iconic Im image. It, it has the image, and I believe this is why God told them to put it on their doorframes, was this is the image of I'm bringing you out of slavery through the door of the blood of the Messiah into freedom. But it's only through that blood. As Noni said, it's only that blood represents His grace. Remember, the blood of an animal is the life of the animal. Well, we are physically animals. Our bodies, you know, if you need a, a new valve in your heart, Usually the, one of the first things they'll look at is, is, is can we get a pig heart that'll fit in there because the valves of a pig heart are very similar to the valves in our own heart. And they can transplant a pig valve into your heart and your heart will not reject it. And it works better than the mechanical valves till it wears out. And since it's not really ours, it does wear out pretty quickly, 10, 15 years. But... My point is, there are very similar. There are a lot of similarities between natural animals and us. We are only different in the sense that we have an eternal spirit in us. Our flesh really is very similar to cows, horses, chimps, great apes. They're all very similar to us. So when, when it says here that, that we're transferring you, it, the, the blood represents the physical life of Jesus, the man, but even more importantly, it represents the spiritual life of, of the Son of God, which is His grace. In the same way that His blood represents His physical body's life, there was a lot more to Jesus than just that body. There was also the life of God. Grace is the blood of the Son of God. It's the life force of God is His grace. It's His personality. It's His provision. It's His grace. You cannot separate His grace and the nature of God. They are one and the same. His grace is the expression of Him. The same way our blood and our life is the expression of our physical body. So when, when we go through this, when, when we place the blood of this Messiah on the doorpost, we go from life to death. We go from slavery to freedom. Same thing that Jude is talking about here. When, I, when I'm making myself a bondservant, I am pledging my life forever to Jesus Christ. My brother, but also my God. That's the Jesus represents the humanity. Christ represents the Godhead. I'm taking this man that I lived in his household. We have the same mother. We just had a different father. Joseph was my father. God the Father is your father. But we lived together. 
We have the same mama. But you are also more than just my physical brother. You represent God to me and I am pledging. I am doing to, to me what you did for me. I'm, I'm taking my blood and putting it on your cross. It's the Passover lamb. Now, if, if you think about this, look at the, think of the, the metaphor, the parable. In John 10, 7, this is Jesus talking about the parable of the sheep. And in, in John 10, 7, he uses the frame, he says, or the phrase, I am that door. In, in John 10, we always quote John 10, 10. That verse changed my life. But John 10, 10 says, uh, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus prefaced that with instructions on what a sheepfold was. And in the Jewish culture, in the Mideast, you would have out in the fields, you would have a hedge that made a square, and there would be one gap in the hedge, and at night you would run your sheep into that, that hedge so they would be protected. You could keep them all there together because it's dark. You can't see. They didn't have lights. They didn't have flashlights. But they didn't have a door, so the shepherd would lie down in that gap, and the shepherd became the door. If you went through the, the hedge or over the hedge, you're a thief. But if you go through the door, you only get in the sheepfold if the shepherd allows you. Jesus said, I am that door. You want into my sheepfold, you've got to come through me. That's exactly what the Jews did in Exodus, exactly what bondservants did in, in what they were doing. In, in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, um, Paul uses this, the, the same metaphor here. He says, a great and effective door has opened to me. What is that door? That's an opportunity. It's the, the, the grace of God will give us opportunities to go out and share. But only if we put our blood, we take our life and apply it to that opportunity. In fact, Paul went on. We, we said, talked about this a little earlier in the service. The end of that verse, he said, and there are many adversaries. Just because God has called you to a task doesn't mean that it's just going to all work out real easily. You know, people will think sometimes, and, and I've, I've had these same thoughts. It's just, I think it's human nature. Well, God said, I'm to do this. Well, if this is God's will, then it has to come about. No, it does not. God's, you have to understand this. God's will is not always accomplished. And my proof for that, God says in the epistles that, that His desire is that all should be saved, that none should be lost. And yet He also says broad is the way and great is the number of people that perish. Narrow is the way that, that leads to salvation. Jesus died for every soul, every person that has ever lived. But if you don't accept that, it's God's will that they get saved. But if they reject it, they won't. His will is not automatic. When we have adversaries, it requires us to stand up in faith and back that adversary off. It's God's will for you to be rich financially. He wants us all rich. Now, rich does not mean a millionaire. 
But rich means you can pay all of your bills and you have money left over to sow wherever he tells you to sow. That's his will. Does that mean everybody's going to walk in it? Nope. And let me just meddle here. Some people will never walk in that because they'll never trust God to, to give the tithe. And then if they give the tithe, they'll think, wow, I'm established. I'm a giver. I'm giving 10%. It's just the bare minimum. Start, start pushing yourself. Give more than that. Find, ask God, Lord, I'm, I'm giving the, the, the tithe to my church. That's my storehouse. That's what Malachi said. But give me some places where I can give above and beyond the tithe. Well, brother, who could ever give more than 10%? I knew, Gina and I knew a man, wasn't good friends with him. Now, he's passed on now. But he started a business back in the, Late 60s, early 70s, down where we used to live, selling plywood. All he sold was sell plywood. And when he founded the business, he and his wife sat down and said, we are going to give of the net profit, net profit. Can't give off the gross always because that just the math doesn't work. But everything we are net, 51% is going to the gospel, 49% we get to live on. And when he first started that business, he nearly starved to death. But he did it. When he died, he was a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. I mean, he, had, he probably was valued at 30 or 40 million dollars. And he had given that much or more into the gospel. He gave everywhere. God just took that business. He said, well, I know you're selling plywood. And it didn't take a long time for it to start prospering. He sold a lot of plywood to begin with. But then he said, well, why don't you sell this? And he did, and then he got into real estate, then he got into this, and God led him into all these businesses, and he just, he could make more money by accident than I've ever made on purpose. But his mindset was, and and to be honest with you, when it got into the later years, he said, forget this 51% stuff. I can live on 10% and live better than I ever dreamed I could. He got towards the end. He was giving 90% of his profits away into the gospel and living like a king. I mean, he's driving new Cadillacs. He's got five or six cars. He's living in a house. You could have put our house four or five times into his house. And he's only living on 10%. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not preaching on giving. I'm just saying... He was a bondservant. He said, my life is dedicated to to doing, following your will in my life. But that was God's will, but he had adversaries. There were times when it wasn't always easy. Things came up. You have to decide, am I going to do what I told God I'm going to do, or I'm going to fudge on it? And he refused to fudge. And then then the the, the last metaphor I want to look at is Matthew 24, 33. It's just talking about... The kingdom of heaven. It says, and this is Matthew 24. This is talking about the very last days. This is talking about right before Jesus comes back. He says, um, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. We are living in Matthew 24, 33. That's today. When you see all these things, we're seeing them all. There are so many signs of the times that Jesus is about to come back. The kingdom is at the door. We have adversaries, but there is a great effectual door that's been opened to us. 
when people start, start uh, really having a lot of fear, they start looking for a Savior. That's why one of the reasons, I, I've said it for years, um, one of the reasons that the, the world is going to fall prey Part of it is just there's going, to, there's going to be a time of great deception, but they're going to fall prey to the Antichrist. Is the, I, I really do believe there's going to be a very sharp, short period of warfare, and it's going to devastate the world, and everybody's going to be looking for a peacemaker. And that's when the Antichrist will step forward. And, and in the confusion of that short, vicious war, that's how they're going to explain the disappearance of millions of believers. And... But the portal is there. We're at that door doorpost. Now the other thing is, they 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 pierced the bondservant's ear. Go to Leviticus chapter eight. In Leviticus chapter eight, we're going to look at, at at verse one first. This is the law concerning the the ordination and the setting apart of priests. This is Aaron and his sons. It says now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Remember, the New Testament says all of us as Christians are, are, are kings and priests, both. We stand in the royal line of Jesus. We can command the enemy. We don't have to plead God to make the devil stop in our lives. You command the devil to stop in your life. You have the authority. You're a king. But we're also priests. We are called that we have to take, what we were talking about earlier, we have to pray for our leaders. If we don't pray for them, we tie God's hands. It's, he's looking at us and saying, you intercede for them. And that's the priesthood. So how do we, how do we get consecrated? We'll drop down to verse 20. This is how they consecrated Aaron and, and Aaron's sons. And think about this in light of Jude saying, I'm a bondservant. He said, you shall kill the ram, take part of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. It was all offered up to God as a sacrifice, but they took the blood of that sacrifice, the blood of that ram, they put it on the right ear lobe, on the right thumb, and on the right big toe. The reason being, if you are a warrior, that right ear lobe represented what you hear. It represents um, the, um, 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 the consecration. The right thumb and the right big toe are, are metaphors for what your deeds are from your hand and where you walk and what you do from your toes. In fact, in ancient warfare, it was the practice. If you conquered an army, a lot of the, the, the officers or the king of, of a conquered army, they would cut off their thumbs and cut off their big toes. The reason you do that, if you think about it, if I have a sword in my hand, if I have my thumb and you hit that sword, I can hold on to that sword. But if I only can grip with no thumb, you hit that sword, I can't hold a sword. I cannot fight with a sword with no thumb. And if you cut off the big toe of a person, they cannot run very well. Most of you, I know you, most of you haven't thought through this, but if you're a track coach, you, you really pay particular attention to your athlete's feet because their, how, the health of their foot will determine sometimes how they run. 
And if you hurt your toe, you're not going to be very effective at moving. If you don't think so, break a toe. Man, I, I broke the, the long toe on my right foot. I was held up in, in high school for like six or eight weeks. And even after that, it was hard to push off on that right foot. I'm right-handed, so that's the leg that I really sprinted with. When I went fast, I had to push off harder with that right foot. And it made it difficult. It cut my speed. Well, initially, it ended my speed. I could barely hobble. Just from one little tiny bone in my foot. Imagine if my big toe was gone forever. So when, when, when they are marking these priests, it's significant. The right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe represent, right means the, the position of authority. And it it's represents what they hear, consecrating that, what they, their deeds and where they travel. If you look at Leviticus um, 14, 1 through 4, this is when, if you, if you think about this, this is dealing with someone that has leprosy. When Jesus healed the lepers, he would tell them, now go present yourself to the priest. You couldn't come back into society until you went and got consecrated as being healed. Le Leviticus 14, 1 through 4, remember, Leprosy is also a type of sin. So when we come through the door of Jesus and step out of, out of slavery into freedom, step out of sin into salvation, this is what we have to do. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedarwood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. Notice we've got hyssop and scarlet yarn, which represents the blood. The same thing they did during the Passover. We're going to put the blood on the doorpost. We're going to take the blood and apply it to our lives through the blood and the water. Drop down to verse uh, 10. It said, The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Same imagery. This is the, 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 the priest getting sanctified and, and set apart for their service. The leper saying, I've gotten rid of my disease and I can come back into society. For us, that leprosy is sin. When we get saved, when we apply that blood with the hyssop to our lives, we can now come and say, God, I am becoming a bondservant of you. Take your blood and pierce my right earlobe, and I pledge forever to be your servant. And he says, okay, I'm marking you as cleansed from your sin, and you are now part of my society. The, 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 the hands are our deeds. The feet represents our walks. The, the ears represents obediently hearing and obeying. It, it's a life that's cleansed. It's a life that's consecrated. It's sin that's atoned for. It's a body that's ready for service. Ear to the throne. You know, we use that term, you know, put your nose to the grindstone. No, we, we need to put our ears next to the throne to listen to the commands of the, of the Master. And if we do that, the, the, the Apostle Paul, in several places, also describes himself as a bondservant. It, this, is a will, this is a step beyond. There, there is a, 
and I'm not, please don't, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not just denigrating, I'm not denigrating people that say, well, I've been saved. Great. That's wonderful. That's like saying, you're born. Well, when you're born, what's the, what's the first thing that, that newborns do? They cry. And they say, wait a minute. I was nice and warm and all cozy and cuddly and suddenly I got bright lights, it's cold out here and you're rubbing me with these cloths, you're cleaning me up and I don't want to be clean. I want to go back inside mom. Well, that might be comfortable for, well, it's not going to be comfortable for mom, but you can't live there forever. You got to come into the new earth, but what's, the, what's a baby's first reaction? Gimme, give me, gimme. Give me, give me. When I'm, when I'm hungry, I'm going to scream till you feed me. When I mess my diaper, I'm going to scream till you clean me up. When I'm tired, I'm going to scream till you put me to bed. Then I'm going to scream because you did put me to bed. You give me what I want and I'm still not satisfied. Boy, if that doesn't describe every newborn Christian I've ever met or been. But God says now, at some point, and this is... You know, I've made jokes, and I make jokes all the time about teenagers. At about 13, that switch breaks in your brain, and you hope it comes back. That, that really is not a malfunction. That is those kids, up until that point, their whole world has been mom and dad. Whatever mom and dad say, that's what's true. Whatever mom and dad believe, that's what, what I believe. And at some point in the teenagers, they have to start thinking, wait a minute. I'm not mom and dad. I'm separate. I'm different. What do I believe? Well, the nature of sin immediately takes authority and says, well, you're going to believe different from them because, first of all, they're old, they're, they're, they're not cool, and they're stupid. <laughs> that's every teenager's thought of their parents. And even if they don't express it, that's, that's a hidden motive. But hopefully at some point in there, they're going to figure out, I believe this because I believe it. I've said it before. When I taught Bible at the high school, where the, the private school I taught, I had 80 different churches represented in the five grades that I taught. Well, you talk, I mean, that's a, that's a minefield. You can lose a leg. You can die a bloody death in that. Because 80 different churches, that's 80 different theologies. And if they got 100 members, that's 80,000 different theologies. So I made a rule. I don't care what you believe in my classroom. You are entitled to any belief you want. But you have to go to Scripture and show me why you believe it. Without fail, none of them could do it. None of them knew how to do that. And you know why? Because none of their parents knew how to do it. Or let me not say none of them. Very few of their parents could take me to Scripture and tell me why they believe what they believe. They believed it because this is how I've been raised. I believe it because that's how my preacher teaches. And God help us, half of the preachers believed it because that's how they were taught and they really didn't, had never examined the, the, the doctrines in the Scriptures to figure out exactly what the Scriptures say. They just quoted things they'd been taught from books. We need to get into this book and say, Jesus, if you're real, I want to know who you are and what do you mean by all this stuff? And think through it and, and learn the scriptures. And then at some point in there, you are going to be challenged. God will say, okay, you're grown up now. Here's your job. 
Time to go to work. My favorite saying, and my kids hated it. Oh, Lord, they would look at me with such disgust. Dad, can I have this? I'd say, sure. Just get a job, earn some money. You can go buy all you want. <laughs> no, that's not what I mean. At some point, Jesus is going to look at you and say, you're grown up now, or at least you should be. You're 30 years old. Get out of the crib. Get that bottle out of your mouth and start eating some real food. And get out here and go to work and get a job. Get out of my basement. You shouldn't be living here anymore. Go get your own place. Earn some money. Help other people. That And when, when, when we say, yes, I want to do that, at some point God's going to say, okay, now it's time for you to be a bondservant. Do you want to or not? Are you going to dedicate your life to following me? Well, I, I don't know that I, want to, that I have the ability to be a, a pastor. Not being a pastor, not being a preacher, not being a missionary. It's being a Christian on your job, in your family. That's what being a bondservant. But it's, it's approaching life with this perspective. My life is marked by your life, Jesus. And what you call me is what I'm going to do. I don't care the price. You know, it says uh, uh, the, the, the word for disciple, one of the words for disciple in, in the New Testament is martyrios, where we get the word martyr. And we think of martyrs as people that have physically died for the faith. Yes. Question is, are you going to be, as Romans 12, 1 says, are you going to be a living sacrifice? Are you willing to die while you live? Are you willing to put your earlobe against that cross and drive a nail through your earlobe and mark yourself as a servant of God? Are you willing to say forever and ever, I want the marks of Jesus? Paul, we'll, we'll see that. I don't have time now. I've run out of time. But, but you can see, Paul said, in, I think it was in the letter, first letter to the Corinthians, I've got the marks of Christ in my body. He was stoned. He was whipped. All, and he took pride in every one of those scars. I did this because Jesus did it for me. How could I not do it for him? Now, Jesus may not have called us to get beaten, to be stoned. But, you know, I shared the story a few weeks ago how my students one time came to me and they were, they were upset because they were being persecuted at lunch. And I said, well, what did they do? Well, they threw crackers at us. And they were just so devastated because they got saltines thrown at them. Now, you know, I had to, you know, it was one of those times when you're, like your grandkids say something and you know they're not supposed to say it, but you just, you almost have to bite your lip not to, to smile because it's just so cute. Well, that was one of those, I had to bite my lip so that I didn't smile because I'm thinking, oh, Lord, guys, you don't know what persecution is. There are people in the Mideast being beheaded, having their throats cut, being burned alive, being crucified. Today, 2018. We're in the 21st century and they're still crucifying Christians. Are we willing to set our life aside without having to pay that price? Just live for Him. Live the way He says. Do what He says to do. Witness when He says to witness. Pray when He says to pray. Are you willing to, you know, if God forbid He tells you quit watching TV? I want you to shut your shows off for a, a couple of weeks and just take that time and read my word and pray. 
Now, I'll let you determine what's he calling you to do. But Jude lived with Jesus. He was his brother. And yet at some point he said, there's more to it than flesh and blood. I'm going to put my earlobe on the doorpost and I'm going to drive that nail right through it. And, I'm, and the other thing now in real life, they didn't leave him nailed to the doorpost. Servant can't do much work if he's nailed to the doorpost. But figuratively, metaphorically, we drive our earlobe, we drive that nail through our earlobe to that cross. That cross goes with us. It's part of what Jesus said, you're going to have to bear your cross. We are permanently attached to the cross, which makes us permanently attached to Jesus, which makes us permanently attached to the resurrection, thank God. And, and when we're his child, we don't have to worry about anything. Jesus said it. Why are you worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where are you going to live? I feed birds. I feed rabbits. Don't you think I can feed you? And yet what do we do? Oh, Lord, I need new shoes. My house has fallen down. Welcome to life. Raise it up to Him. He'll provide because He's a faithful, faithful Father. But he's calling us to be a bondservant, to nail our life to his life permanently. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.